2: personality is really important, but, you know, when you're studying the Romanovs, you sort of, one constantly has to remind oneself that, actually, first of all, it's not that different from what was happening in England or or other powers at the time. That
3: was Simon Sibag-Montefiore discussing the Romanov czars.
4: If you think of this as a major trade network point, so there are Mediterranean ships, also ships from what is now France and Spain, this is where they would have been coming to uh, to make those exchanges. So it's a real cosmopolitan place in the 6th and 7th century.
3: And that was Miles Russell, on location at Tintagel Castle. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of January 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Simon Sebag montefiore a best-selling author, historian and broadcaster, whose books include an acclaimed two-part biography of Joseph Stalin and A History of Jerusalem. His latest book, published today the 28th of January, is The Romanovs, 1613-1918 which tells the story of the royal dynasty which ruled Russia until the revolutions of 1917, and among whose number include the likes of Peter and Catherine the Great. We sent our books editor, Matt Elton, to meet Simon at his London home. And he began by asking him why he chose to embark on this project.
2: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the Russian Empire, Putin the Russian Empire, make this like a completely sort of timely relevant book because really this is a study, among many other things, It's a study of the Russian Empire. Mm. Um, and um, as you know if you've looked at it, it goes it literally goes from Ivan the Terrible to Putin, yeah. including yeah. all the Romanovs, but also sort of Stalin, Lenin. They're all in there. Yeah. So it's really a study of sort of it's really a study of the Russian Empire, but it's also a study of sort of how power works. That's always relevant.
5: A theme that comes through repeatedly is how difficult it is to unpick personality from politics. Yeah, um, and there's some really strong characters in there. Um, starting right back at the beginning, what? How, how? can we trace the start of this dynasty? What, what's your take on the earliest days? I guess.
2: Well, the interesting thing about it is that you know, first of all, first of all, the the best way to get become um, the best way to become royal was to marry into the royal family. Um, nothing's changed. So, um, so you know the, the Romanovs came to came to came to um, prominence because they married Ivan the Terrible. So Ivan the Terrible is really the father of the Romanov dynasty. So you have to start with him. But actually, he was kind of hard to get any personality from, even though he was Tsar for thirty years. Very little remains of him. Um, but there were lots of strong characters around him, like his father, who was really the kind of power behind the regime. Um, and all the way through, it's very fascinating because, of course, there are there are often sort of heirs who are going to be czar who die or are killed or something, and each of them could have chose, could have changed the whole destiny of Russia. Mm. Um, because you're right, personality is really important. But you know, when you're studying the Romanovs, you sort of when, when I constantly has to remind oneself that actually, it's not first of all, it's not that different from what was happening in England or or other powers at the mm. time, and secondly, you know, one forgets how one's very we're often very kind of um, smug and sort of superior about the sort of primitiveness of Russian yeah. autocracy, but actually, you know, one forgets that sort of even Western, you know, even Western democracies, in, the prime ministers had their own entourages and their own circles. I mean, look at the, look at Tony Blair's sort of um, look at Tony Blair's sofa government. You mm. know, so so um, so really, it's a sort of a bit to where you can look at it is just a study of personality and power everywhere. Mm.
5: From these very earliest days, how important was it to choose a wife, and, and how did that happen?
2: Well, the wife, the choosing of wives was was, was actually a very exotic ritual, which was the bride show. Mm-hmm. And um, the bride show was was literally a beauty contest, like the X Factor, in which um, in which all the sort of all the pretty girls from Russia were invited to Moscow, um, and then they kind of they went through various kind of um, rounds until there was a sort of final viewing when mm-hmm. the Tsar started to choose his favorites and then whittled nett- it down. But of course, people, behind the scenes, people were backing different girls. And um, the whole point of the bride show was that the girls weren't connected or related to anyone important.
5: So they were safe in some way. So they
2: were safe. They weren't going to change the political situation. But of course, gradually, um, you know, these these, uh, bride shows could be fixed.
5: How how important was the court as well, as as a factor, as an influence?
2: Um, The court was always always incredibly important. And the court was like... Was a, was both the spe- spectacle to sort of project majesty, but also it was where you kind of brokered all the sort of influences and, and, and factions and kept all of them um, kept all of them happy, hopefully, hopefully happy and in constant rivalry with each other. Yeah. Um, if you didn't handle the court right, you didn't read it right, and in, in Russia, you were quite liable to be murdered. Mm.
5: You write in the book that there's some characters who you think don't haven't had enough attention because yeah. there's some huge figures here, Catherine yeah. and Peter. Yeah. Are there any uh, figures that you think were particularly interesting and important that haven't had the attention elsewhere?
2: Well, I mean, the the, the, the great the most underrated of the czars is Alexander the Okay. And he, you know, he's a sort of massive figure of great effectiveness, but because he was up against Napoleon, and Napoleon always described him as a kind of feckless weakling. Um, you know, he's kind of, everyone's followed that kind of line. Actually, he was mystical, slightly unbalanced, slightly, you know, given to sort of crazy ideas. But this is a man who, like, who, who I mean, of course he was involved in the killing of his own father, which is always a problem um, with anybody, and he never <laughs> recovered from that himself. Um, but actually, he turned out to be a very, you know, he was, an, once, he'd, I mean, he was once, he'd, once he'd started, once he'd learned how to rule and, key thing was not to over interfere in military matters because mm. he was not a kind of brilliant commander the fact very few of the Romanovs were, were very good generals um, and they all wanted to be mm. um, only peter the great really understood military matters properly had a sort of feel for military matters and he was he was just brilliant in every way yeah um, but um, but uh, alexander I, once he'd learned that he proved to be a brilliant diplomat I mean, he put together the coalition that destroyed Napoleon, and you know he, you know he led an army literally from Moscow to, to Paris.
5: Incredible. which yeah. is incredible. Yeah. and
2: so he's hugely underrated because because of the because of the things that I, I've described. Um, but he was obviously incredibly effective, and um, and had a will of steel, despite everyone saying. So that, you know it's ironic that the person who's regarded as the weakest, the most the one who could never make up his mind. So he's hugely underrated. There's no doubt about it. Mm.
5: Because you had to be so tough to have that position, you had to be so kind of almost brutal, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, to have to be bizarre, you had to be kind of, you had to be able to drown puppies of some sort, you know, and um, you had to be severe, and you were expected to be. Yeah. Um, the point is, if you were going to be severe, you had to be, you know, you had to be kind of, you had to be consistent. You couldn't be. You couldn't be. Um, you couldn't turn on people every day. So Emperor Paul was kind of, all, you know, was kind of kind to someone one day, literally. There were people he sort of sacked three or four times, you know. And in the end, these people, even though they were promoted, when they, each time they came back, they were promoted higher, but they gradually decided that he had to be killed. Mm-hmm. And that was an extraordinary thing. And actually, I was very lucky, because in the, in the, um, I found this, there's, there's, there's a sort of memo written by someone who knew all the people. that no one's really used before Okay. in the, um, it's in the French archives. So that, um, that really made, um, that really made a big difference. So. So the sort of his murder was a kind of classic of how you know, he was. He was a classic of not how not to handle the court.
5: Yeah. Um, what you, what kind of qualities did you have to get ahead at court? Was there a set of individual characteristics that would help you succeed?
2: Well, incredible sort of incredible duplicity <laughs> and um, and conspiratorial you know, ability to conspire in a completely personal court mm. was essential. But ultimately. Um, Ultimately, you know, you had to be, you had to, you had to attract the Tsar somehow. And the way to do that was either, I mean, the best way was to deliver victory. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that was the simplest way. Yeah. Because if you delivered victory, but then you were a threat to the Tsar too.
5: You had to manage it quite you carefully. You had to
2: manage though. it carefully. But if you were, um, a better way was just, to, a better way was to be, you know, it was, a better way was to have the Tsar fall in love with you. Mm. Um, that was, that's the old fashioned way. Yeah. But, um, but that didn't necessarily give you any power at all, depending on the Tsar. Um it's it's ironic that two of the greatest ministers of the Romanov dynasty were both lovers of Tsars, Tsarinas, Shivalov and Potemkin. Mm-hmm. They were really the two most kind of outstanding ministers of the entire the entire centuries, and yet they both started as lovers. So Okay. So you could say sort of you know, the, the usual the conventional argument would be like, well, of course, like in a system where they told obviously, they were going to promote idiots, mm. and no one would ever come up that way who was talented. But actually, um, it wasn't so.
5: Mm. Uh, you write that there was four things that Assad had to do, four areas they had to look yeah. after, so political, imperial, yeah. yeah.
2: Religious, like? military, whatever, yeah.
5: How, how did they go about managing all of these things? How could they possibly have such a broad remit?
2: Well, they did... I mean, the trouble is, to be a czar... Um, you had to be a sort of generalissimus, a pope. Um, you know, you had to be. You had to be all these sort of things. Um, uh, you, you had to be a politician, um, and you, no one could do it. And the only person who could really do it was Peter the Great. He just could do everything, um, but he had his. He had other problems. You know, sort of. He was a sort of a demented sadist as well. Yeah. So you know, you, you just couldn't do everything. Um, and, you know, you expected to be everything. And the trouble was that there was a huge flaw in the whole regime, which was that, you know, you couldn't really have a... In the Romanov system, you couldn't really have a brilliant chief minister. So you couldn't have a sort of... You couldn't have a Richelieu, a Bismarck, you know, a Disraeli. They, they never had... They, you couldn't really have one of those. Yeah. Because that would, that, would undermine the, that would undermine the autocracy. And yet, no one was capable of doing it themselves... It's that was a big problem. Yeah,
5: yeah. There's only space for one person, but one person couldn't possibly do yeah. it by themselves. Because
2: when they had, I mean, even Nicholas II, I mean, he had Stalipin, but he constantly, you know, he ended up completely undermining Stalipin and um, sort of almost destroying Stalipin. So, so, but you know, Stalipin was, Stalipin and Vita were the two most brilliant ministers of the later period, but both of them were kind of, the, the Tsar couldn't trust them. So he kept promoting, Nicholas II had a sort of mistake. He kept, he wanted to be the autocrat, but he couldn't do it. He just couldn't do the job, and um, so he ended up sort of create, creating a kind of more and more autocratic state, but with a hole in the middle. Yeah. No autocrat. Mm.
5: You mentioned Peter there. How early on in his life can we tell that he was going to be extraordinary?
2: Really early, because there's a great scene really early on when he's about four, and there's a and his father's having a sort of having holding a sort of diplomatic reception, and suddenly the door was kicked open, and, and the little boy runs in, sort of you know, and his mother runs after and catches and takes him out again. So he was always kind of totally exceptional. Um, but of course, he could have just been a madman. I mean, the, the difference between, I mean, one's always aware with these, with these kind of the, the small differences of personality that that make that are so decisive, because he could so easily have been a sort of just an eccentric nutter, basically. But he was so talented, he knew how to do everything. When you read his, when you read his orders, um, you know, he was just so intelligent and sort of visionary. It was just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So he was always, but what's interesting is he didn't come out of nothing. His father was quite similar to him, and that's the interesting thing when you look at his father, who no one's heard of now, um, was also obsessed with kind of cannons and um, very good at technology and very interesting. He had the same kind of um, mixture of kind of generosity and, and brutality. Mm-hmm. So, um, so he didn't sort of just appear out of nothing, no. as as it seems. Yeah.
5: And I mean there's been a lot made of, of how decadent his court was. Mm. But how important was that to to his rule, to his success, I guess?
2: Well, I'm not sure it was really necessary, but it was sort of it was totally bizarre. I mean, you know, he had you know, he had um you know, he called himself. you know he had all these kind of naked sort of old men walking around with dildos and um, there was dancing, there were dwarfs there were dwarfs, there were giants, there was, so he he had this kind of carnival um, court. But what it did, it, it but it was useful because it did mean that sort of his barons and his barons and counts and his generals were all terrified of him, yeah. um, and he had them all there. Where he could watch them, and that way it was very like Stalin's dinners. You know, he could suddenly he would turn on it in a moment from sort of being playful to suddenly sort of accusing someone of corruption or treachery, and then and often like these these dinners ended up in kind of general brawls. I mean, at one point, one of his top ministers stabbed a person with a fork and killed them. I mean, you know, so... And, and they were never punished. No. So, so, but it was kind of important because it really created... The, what it was really about, I think, was that it just showed that this was a man... This was a, the Tsar was a monarch of, ex, of exceptional and extraordinary gifts blessed by God who could do anything he wanted in the world. That's what it was about. Yeah. But it was also a lot of fun for him.
5: Then, in terms of the Golden Age, we should talk about Catherine... Yeah. Um, what were her greatest strengths?
2: Um, well, she just was possessed. She just had everything, basically. Um, you know, she she was different from Peter, of course. That she couldn't, she couldn't physically kind of beat people up, and she couldn't physically command armies. You know, that would have been ridiculous. So, but she was a masterful sort of. She was a master at everything. She was supremely intelligent, totally charming, very, very manipulative, obviously. Ruthless when, absolutely ruthless when she needed to be. I mean, if you, you know, it wasn't a coincidence that like two Tsars died so that she could rule. Um, but she was, but she was, she was essentially decent, actually, though, that doesn't, you know, it sounds, that sounds contradictory. I mean, she always tried to sort of do the right, I mean, she and Potemkin were sort of exceptional. They were exceptional because they really tried to, so whenever possible to be humane in a way that no one's, no one in Ru- ruling Russia has really bothered much since, or before. And, so um, she
5: stands out as much as that. You think? Yeah, she really now.
2: stands out, and she's sort of, you know, uh, I mean, of course, you have to take every, I mean she's dominated the sort of story of her marriage. Who knows what really happened in her marriage? We only have her account of it, and um, you know, but it does seem that her husband was as, I mean, everyone, everyone thought he was a monster, so it wasn't just her. Yeah. So I don't think she was she was alone, but the way she kind of managed to survive that marriage and end up as as empress for thirty years mm. is so extraordinary. Yeah.
5: It's such a long period of time as well. Mm.
2: And she handled everything very successfully. I mean, she was so clever the way she sort of handled everybody. Mm. And there was a sort of generous generosity in her personality. As for the sex, I mean, the key thing about her was what she said herself, that I have to be in love every minute. You know, she had no family at all. Her son was a kind of, was a, was a monster. So really, she sort of had to create her own family. And she just wanted to be, she just wanted, she wanted to live with love while she did her job, which she loved as well. So that led to, of course, as she got older, that led, that led to some absurdities because, you know, like all of us, I mean, she, she took young lovers because she could. Um, you know, she's sort of, in her, in her 60s, she could have beautiful young men of 20.
5: Because she could. Because yeah. she
2: could. Yeah. And they all wanted to be in that, but of course, it led to great unhappiness because, you know, in the end, being walking around behind an old lady all day, um, while surrounded by beautiful ladies in waiting and stuff, maids of honour and stuff, was impossible. In the end, they all fell in love with somebody else yeah. and ran off and stuff. Um, and but she was always incredibly generous with them. She never took revenge on them or anything. Um, and but of course, she ended up in her last sort of five years with Zuboff, the sort of her her youngest, you know, her youngest and most useless lover. Um, that was a terrible mistake, and could have led to complete It could have ruined the entire reign. In fact, she just about got got away with it. Mm.
5: Um, talking about uh, points of particular danger, what kind of crisis points stand out for you across this whole sweeping
2: um, story? Well, I mean, you know, the, I mean, the the well, eighteen twelve was a big one, obviously, because you know they could have lost everything. I mean, Napoleon could have won. Um, but the fall of Moscow, they survived the fall of Moscow, which was amazing, actually. I mean, it must have seemed like the regime could fall then. And um, you know, there were a lot of I mean, there were a lot of danger. And the big danger points, were, the big sort of obvious danger points, were the invasions of Charles the Twelfth. I mean, if if, if, um, if Peter the Great had lost um, Poltava or lost, you know, he would have rushed. Europe could look very different. I mean, we could have a huge Sweden. You yeah, know, well, yeah, it's true. I mean Sweden could we could have a Sweden that controlled sort of you know, that controlled the whole Baltic and that whole area towards Novgorod. So the, the world could have looked quite different. Mm. So that would have sort kind of halved, halved European Russia in a way. Yeah. Um I mean, it now seems sort of totally impossible, but everything's possible.
5: Because only with hindsight do we get yeah. well,
2: out. No, yeah, now it yeah. seems like obvious that Russia's gonna be this kind of this kind of giant bear. And then I mean obviously eighteen twelve of Napoleon, but but it's hard to see how Napoleon... I mean, Napoleon just couldn't compromise enough to... to um, and, and and the trouble is that by this point, Alexander I had found steel in his character, and so he was not going to sort of... He was just not going to make peace with him, whatever happened. Mm. So, so that's another one.
5: So as we head uh, into uh, the dynasty's decline... Oh, yeah. Do you think it's fair to say that it was a victim of its own earlier success?
2: Yeah, very much so, Because because the thing is... It was so successful early that, it was, that there was a huge resistance to changing anything, fundamentally. Mm. So that, that, was, that was a major factor in its failure.
5: Mm. Um, and do you think that in some way absolves some of the later individuals for being less successful in their roles, do you
2: think? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, it's, it's very easy to say that they got everything wrong. Mm. But, I mean, it was, actually it was much more complicated and harder to do than everyone thought. And, and they were quite likely to get overthrown in the process, if not, you know, if not worse, mm. if they got it wrong. Um, you know, it was very difficult. The sort of the, the sort of the, the the dilemmas of Nicholas II were extremely hard. You know, extremely difficult to um, to sort out. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm not sure anyone would have sorted them out.
5: Even the great characters. that we Even like. the
2: great characters. They might have, but I mean, also like you know, avoiding 1914. Mm-hmm. You know, was actually was actually extremely difficult. Really.
5: We should talk about uh, Alex and Nikki
2: because
5: mm. um, there's been so much written about them. Yeah. And you say that you want to present an unvarnished yeah. view of them. What is your take on?
2: Well, the thing is that the thing about them is that they've been so um, that there's just a, they've become an industry, obviously, and they are fascinating. It's impossible not to think about them without knowing how it all ended. And one's got to try and look at them without knowing, without knowing that all the time. Mm. Um, I mean, it's like when you look at the Shah of Iran or sort of Haile Selassie or Ethiopia or any of these kind of, you know, all the Kaiser or whatever. It's impossible to look at these people without sort of thinking of how it ended. But one's got to because, you know, most political careers are 20 or 30, you know, 20, 30 years. If, if they were successful for 20 or 30 years, that's quite something. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, with, with these kind of, um, with, with great monarchs like this, you, you, know, the, the, you know, one's looking at it from posterity. And that's the game that they're playing. That's the game they're in. So, of course, you've got to say that Nicholas and Alexandra were were sort of monumental failures, politically. The question is sort of why? And um, so I want to look at them. I wanted to look at them as politicians as well as um, family people, as well as lovers, you know, as well as a happy couple and sort of with children and stuff. And there's been, you know, obviously Robert Massey's Nicholas and Alexandra, the movie and the book, dominate, still completely dominate the way they're regarded in the West. Um, as, and we feel great empathy for them and sympathy for them because, because of the, you know the, the Alexei had haemophilia, and because they were all murdered, um, and because they were a kind of happy bourgeois couple.
3: That was Simon Sebag Montefiore in conversation with Matt Elton, and as I mentioned before, The Romanovs, sixteen thirteen to nineteen eighteen, is out now in the UK, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And in the US, it's due to be published in May. And you can also read more from Simon and Matt in the February issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on Henry IV, the Battle of Verdun, Benjamin Franklin, Dad's Army, and a whole lot more. You can get a hold of our February edition in all good news agents and our many digital formats.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show
0: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists any time. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra.
3: And now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason.
6: The bodies of around 800 children who died in the 19th century have been discovered by archaeologists ahead of the construction of a road in Lancashire. The remains of the children, who were all aged under six, were among 1,967 bodies exhumed at St Peter's Burial Ground, which opened in Blackburn in 1821. The deaths can be explained by a lack of good sanitation and medicines, experts say. Dave Henderson an expert in the study of bones with Headland Archaeology, said most of the children had died from infections in the lungs and guts. He said the town was becoming overcrowded at the time and it was, quote, a very large centre for the industrial mills and the population grew very quickly. In other news, poetry in Britain is in danger of being, quote, consigned to the history books, it has been suggested. According to a poll of 2,000 Britons undertaken to commemorate the work of Robert Burns, just over a quarter knew that the line Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink, was penned by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Meanwhile, less than a fifth could identify these words of Alfred Lord Tennyson, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." One poll, who conducted the survey, said... We're a country steeped in literary heritage with some of the finest writers ever to pick up a pen, but it seems our engagement with poetry is in decline. With more than half those polled not able to recall the last time they even read a poem, there's a danger the art form could be consigned to the history books. What do you think? Share your views by tweeting us at History Extra or by posting on our Facebook page. Meanwhile, a newly discovered story written by Beatrix Potter more than 100 years ago, is to be published for the first time in September. The manuscript, titled The Tale of Kitty in Boots, was rediscovered two years ago by publisher Joe Hanks after she found a reference to it in an out-of-print Potter biography. The tale features an appearance from a, quote, older, slower version of Peter Rabbit. Potter sent the story to her publisher in 1914, saying it was about a, quote, "'well-behaved prime black kitty cat "'who leads rather a double life.'" Potter had only completed a single drawing to go with the manuscript, so Quentin Blake, best known for his work with Roald Dahl, has illustrated the story. Publisher Joe Hanks said, "'The tale really is the best of Beatrix Potter. "'It has double identities.'" colourful villains and a number of favourite characters from other tales, including Mr Todd, Mrs Tiggywinkle, Ribby and Tabitha Twitchit.
3: Each month in the magazine, we include an article where we visit a historical location in the company of an expert on the period. For the latest edition, our production editor, Spencer Mizen visited Tintagel Castle in Cornwall, which is closely tied to the legend of King Arthur. There Spencer was joined by Miles Russell, Senior Lecturer in Archaeology at the University of Bournemouth and a specialist in Britain's distant past. Here's how they got on.
7: I guess my first question is, um, when was Tintagel, as far as you know, first inhabited and by whom?
4: Uh, Well, Tintagil is, as far as we know, uh, first inhabited um, very clearly in in the Roman period. There's some prehistoric material found up here. We know there's a a large ditch that sort of cuts the modern island off um, from the rest of Cornwall which the material that's come out of that looks like it's it's predominantly 6th and 7th century AD, so sort of post-Roman, but it'd be surprising if there wasn't an Iron Age fort up here. There's a lot of Iron Age promontory forts along the coastline, and this is such a a dramatic and dominating part of the landscape. I suspect there's something Iron Age up here, and probably there's Bronze Age, and there's, there's Neolithic material as well, but much of what's gone on from the 6th century right through the medieval period has erased that Right. So, although there are artifacts from time to time, solid archaeological features really aren't here. They've, they've been removed by later activity.
7: Right. Well, um, what sort of people would have lived here? I mean, my right in saying it was a, a, center? It was a dark age trading centre. There's a lot of trade coming in from the Mediterranean.
4: There, there is. There's certainly a lot of material coming in. I mean, we we don't know very much about um, Cornwall in the Roman period. We know there's a lot of mining going on. That's one of the things that attracted Romans to Britain in the first place was uh, the iron um, for the, the, the lead, tin. And Cornwall's very rich in tin. And obviously just up in the Mendips, just above us, there's a lot of lead. Um, and they certainly there's a lot of mining activity going on in Cornwall in the first, second, third centuries A.D., but there's not a lot of other Roman activity. There's no real Roman town's Exeter's about the the furthest west as a Roman town you can go. So we don't get villas, we don't get other signs of Roman activity. So we know the Romans are exploiting the metal reserves here and presumably for most of the people throughout the Roman occupation, life goes on pretty much as it always has done. They're they're not that disturbed by by the Roman Empire. Um, Some of them may have benefited from access to more Roman goods, but when we talk about the end of Roman Britain, it's not that dramatic a change in this part of the world because the Roman administration has gone, but people are still doing what they've always done, farming that they've always done. There's still mining going on. And that, I think, is what makes this part of Britain very attractive for anyone outside of Britain, because the Western Roman Empire is collapsing in the sixth century and the Eastern Empire, which goes on till um, 1453 AD. Yeah. They need access to good lead and need access to good tin. And there are lots of coastal routes around what is now Spain and Portugal, up the Atlantic coast, and you make first landfall in Cornwall. The tin is still being dug up. There is a big market in it. The the Roman Empire still needs it, even though it's not still controlling Britain. And I think anyone who is digging that material up and has got access to it can, in return, buy wine, um, lots of exotics, pottery, glassware, all the things that Mediterranean can offer, but which can't be manufactured in Britain. So there's a massive trade, and I think the end of the Roman Empire in Britain is a godsend for the people who live in this part of the world because they've still got those raw materials, sure. and there's still a market for it. Yeah. So I think that's why sites like this, although today they seem very marginal, they're on the edges of the landscape, would have been central to that whole trade network at the time. This is where there's lots of wealth, lots of money, and lots of exchange going on.
7: So there would have been boats coming into Tintagel from the Mediterranean, essentially, yes, and beyond.
4: Yeah, we, we we don't really know where the harbour zone is. Um, today, a lot of the the coast here is is very difficult to ne- to negotiate, but certainly. You've got prominent headlands like this that have acted as a as a key sort of resource. There's people making metalwork. There's people making ingots. There's people manufacturing other local goods. And we can imagine somewhere around here ships would have been um, sort of really sort of dredged uh, sort of up on a hard or sort of um, making deep water anchor further out to sea and bringing goods in. But this, if you think of this as a major trade network point, so there are Mediterranean ships and also ships from what is now France and Spain this is where they would have been coming to right. uh, to make those exchanges. So it's a real cosmopolitan place in the sixth sure. and seventh century.
7: Yeah, if you could um, just
4: explain um, a bit more about the genesis of um, yeah, Tintagel's yeah. collection to our book. Yeah, I, I think I mean, the first literary source that we get for uh, Arthur um, at Tintagel is uh, 1136. It's Geoffrey of Monmouth who's writing uh, the history of the, the kings of Britain. Um, we don't know much about his motives um, for doing that, but certainly he, is, uh, he, he he's trying to write a very sort of explicitly British history as opposed to all the English uh, and Norman ones around at the time. Um, and he claims that he, he's using a lot of ancient sources, um, he claims he's got a, an ancient book which he's, he's uh, translating um, in, right. in, in, into Latin. It's difficult because we we, we can't trace what his sources actually are, so we we don't know how real um, his material is, how much he's made up, Um, but he's certainly gathering together a whole series of legends and stories from the west country of of Britain to create this single narrative uh, of the past. But the key thing is that he says Arthur is conceived at Tintagel, he makes that specific link, and he, he claims that Tintagel is one of those uh, big royal centres uh, of the, the earls of Cornwall. So these sort of the ancient um, sites in the in the Dark Ages. So so clearly it's important at the time that he's writing, and it may be there is some kind of legend, a link between Arthur and this particular site. So he has Arthur's father um, Uther Pendragon, who is besotted with the the wife uh, Igraine, who's mm-hmm. the, the wife of the. Um, uh, the the, the Cornish King then, um, uh, and Arthur sort of follows them down into Cornwall. Um, Golois, the Cornish King, sets himself up um, as a distraction further to the south, and he puts uh, a a grain up in in Tintagel, which is supposed to be a very highly defendable place, so she's very protected there. Uther gets wind of this, and in the whole sort of story, um, he gets Merlin, his, his own private wizard, to transform him into the image of Gourlois. He gets access to Tintagel. Uh, to cut a long story short, Arthur is conceived there. Uh, Gourlois is later killed when he is he, he's attacked by Arthur's men. So, and we don't really know what Igraine feels about this sort of uh, deception, or what she feels about Uther but she eventually becomes married to Uther. Arthur is conceived. We, we don't know whether Arthur, I mean, what Geoffrey doesn't say is Arthur was born here. That's the additional of later romances. Um, so they create this as the birthplace of Arthur. It's certainly the birthplace of the legend and the linking between Arthur and Tintagel.
7: Right.
4: What we're missing is the years between the 6th century AD and 1136 when Geoffrey writes his book because all the tales around this site are, are sort of all, they're, they're sure. passed down by word of mouth. Nothing's written down. So right. we don't know what specifically links this site with the Arthur mythology. Do we know a lot about Jeremy, Geoffrey of Monmouth? No. <laughs> very little, right, No, I we, 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 we don't no, know. Right. We, all we know is we presume he is from Monmouth, um, because, yeah, sure. because that's the title that's added to his name. Yeah. Um, we know nothing about his family. Uh, we know that uh, as a cleric, he is working in Oxford. That's where he's writing his History of the Kings um, of Britain. Yeah. Uh, Archdu- uh, uh, Archbishop Walter is, um, of Oxford is, is, um, commissions him to write this book. But, but no, he, he is just really a name, so we know nothing about his background, his right. history, his story, what motivated him to write the, sure. the
7: thing in the first place. And does his work predate the medieval castle that was built here? Which yes, it does, right? okay Yes. Yeah, so what, what what Jeffrey's doing is
4: he's creating that link. Um, so. When uh, we, we've got the effectively the next big event in Tintagel's history are the is the youngest son of King John. So we've got you know, obviously King John, especially associated with a whole sort of Robin Hood later mythology. Yeah. But his his two sons, uh, Henry's the oldest, Richard is the, the youngest, and Richard is made Earl of Cornwall um, as one of his many other sort of territories that that he actually owns. And what Richard seems to do, he's someone else we know very little about. But what he seems to want to do is is straight away make a link with the earlier mythology of Arthur and of Tristan. And Tintagel is somewhere he wants to build his house. Um, And what we've got is a castle. It's it's a nice romantic ruin today, but it's nothing like a medieval fortress. I mean, it's on a defendable position, but the walls are very thin. They built it out of slate in a very sort of antiquated, mock antiquated way. And what Richard's probably doing is establishing himself as an Earl of Cornwall and building on an ancient Cornish site, one that's right. associated with Arthur, uh, his conception, possibly his birth as well, one that's associated with Tristan and his and, and alt. And so he's building his house here um, in the 1230s. Now, of course, 100 years before, Geoffrey and Mom has written his book, so and that, that's got widespread success, that's created the whole sort of Arthur story. It's very uh, popular within Norman England, because what Arthur's doing is fighting the English, the Normans are fighting the English as well, so they sort of adopt Arthur as a, as a hero of their own, and they link into sort of the earlier British mythology of, of kings. So for Richard, although he knows he's not gonna be king, he's got big ambitions, and Tintagel is the perfect place to build his house. It's draughty, it's cold, it's difficult to access, but politically, and with all the mythology around it, it it's the perfect
7: place to establish his building. How widely read would um, Geoffrey of writings have been? I mean, what kind of impact would his stories have had on medieval Britain, aside from Richard? It, it, it's difficult to
4: know because, obviously, before the printing press, they're not going to get widespread um, dissemination. But it's probably the, the first medieval bestseller in that sort of sense. It, it's something which, I mean, it probably didn't make him any money in that sense, but it, it, it creates... It establishes the mythology of Arthur as a person. It's the the first text to establish Arthur's career from his birth to all the big events that he does and his his great sort of celebrated death. It links him in with all the other mythological kings of Britain. You've got King Lear, uh, you've got King Cole, you've got a whole series of other sort of mythological kings, some of which Shakespeare and other writers draw on for, for their inspiration. So in that sense, it is widespread readership amongst the, the elite of, of medieval Europe, but it's certainly got a massive impact. Um, sure. And you, we can
7: see so many other bits of, of literature. It's really where the Arthur story begins. And so, was there then a sort of flowering of um, Arthurian literature um, following Geoffrey's writings?
4: Um, yes, yeah, sometime after,
7: I mean, we, we, we certainly get,
4: um, it, it, it certainly becomes popular within um, the, the Anglo-Norman um, aristocracy and certainly the kings. It has a big impact later on, and we can, as you sort of going on through, um, you know, it gets elaborated by, by later um, French writers who add sort of Lancelot and the Holy Grail and Percival and that sort of mythology. So there are sort of phases where the story gets reactivated and added to over time but it certainly has a massive impact with the um, royalty within England because the the Anglo-Norman royalty wants to make that link with an earlier sort of royal line so we get individuals like Edward I when he's he's, um, establishing castles in North Wales He builds on the mythology from the Mabinogion and the other sort of um, of Welsh literature. He builds a a big sort of elaborate castle at Carnarvon, where we've got the story of of Maxim, which is from Magnus Maximus, a a late Roman general. So he understands that, he builds that on there. Henry II uh, commissions the the monks um, of um, Glastonbury to excavate a grave, they they claim to find the the actual grave of King Arthur and Guinevere, um, which is a twofold purpose there because it it, it shows that um, Arthur's dead, he's not coming back to save the Welsh, he he is dead, he's a skeletal remains. so that's good politically, but also it's good for the the monks of Glaston because it becomes um, an early pilgrimage site, so it's a money-making scheme from their perspective. So you can see Geoffrey of Monmouth's impact in that respect is that there are people who are trying to, I suppose it's an early form of archaeology, they're digging up, they're trying to make links with his story, but it also legitimises the, 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 the Norman kings and their line and their justification for suppressing the Cornish, the Welsh, and other right. parts okay. of, the, of the British
7: Isles. And would that also be seen in, in the Winchester Round Table?
4: Yes, I mean the Winchester yeah, exactly. round is, is is another good example um, where you've got um, a, an attempt. I mean, certainly sort of um, Edward the First, but also Edward the Second and Edward the Third, and a lot of the the kings establish this idea of King Arthur's court being very chivalric. You've got jousting, you've got this holiday of of knights in, in brotherly competition. So the round table that we see in Winchester now is a recreation of that. I mean, we don't know exactly when the idea of a round table begins. Geoffrey of Monmouth is not part of his his literature, but it becomes part of the story um, by the 13th and 14th century. So it's created as part of this later reactivation of of, um, Arthur's court. And of course, when um, the House of Tudor takes over, um, Henry VII... We, we've got this, you know, he, he is a king who's got no real claim to the throne, based sort on of obscure links, but, but he's from a Welsh family. So he makes that Arthur link very secure. Obviously he, his first son he, he names Arthur, so there'll be a, a second King Arthur. Um, of course Arthur dies young and it, it comes to, to Henry VIII. And what we see when you look at the table now in Winchester is the, it's been repainted and we've got actually Henry VIII's face as Arthur on there so he is explicitly making that link with the earlier he's effectively saying okay I don't have a great claim to the throne but my family can trace its way back to Arthur and the kings of Britain therefore it's more secure and also we're linking back to an early British form of Christianity of course when he makes the break with Rome He's saying, well, the Roman church is relatively new. In Britain, we've got Christianity much earlier, and that's another way of taking the story of
7: Arthur and the story of Geoffrey of Monmouth and using it for political ends. Can the legend of Arthur um, tell us much about um, the Anglo-Saxon occupation of Britain and um, Welsh and Cornish resistance to that?
4: Probably not. Um, I mean, the trouble with, with Arthur, the, the Arthur that we see in Geoffrey and Monmouth is, is a composite character. He's created out multiple, perhaps different heroes, generals. We can identify bits of the story of, of things like there's a Roman general, Magnus Maximus, there's Constantine the Third, there's right there back to first century AD kings in Britain um, who were encountered when the Romans arrived. There's bits of all their stories that are taken up and, and morphed into this one story of Arthur. So if we're looking at the character, it's very difficult to say very much about the reality of 6th and 7th century Britain. But one of the perhaps inspiring figures for Arthur one who's specifically named in the 6th century by a, a cleric called Gildas who's writing on, on the ruin of Britain which is basically just a, a monumental moan about how terrible things are um, and, and there's plagues and the Saxons have arrived, the English have arrived as a, as a punishment on the Britons because they've been so sort of decadent but Gildas, who doesn't have a good word to say about anyone, does mention one British general called Ambrosius Aurelianus who's about the only person who he's he's in a good light and he says that he's a he's a great general he's descended from the romans he defeats the english and a number of of battles the the best one is is the siege of mount baden or baden Uh, he doesn't say where mount baden is he doesn't say who's besieging whom so it's it's lacking in detail and many people have have, uh, tried to find baden near bath or or, uh, badbury rings in dorset but Ambrosius Aurelianus is, is the one character, because Gildas is talking about someone who died only 40 years before he was writing. So here we've got a character who did exist. That might be the inspiration for Arthur. It could be that Ambrosius, his um, exploits as a, as, a, as a king fighting off other British kings as well as English ones, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a clear-cut Britons against Saxons, it's Britons against Britons, we've got right. tribal identities, it's much like when you look at sort of the collapse of modern states, when you look at what's going on in Iraq, uh, in Syria, it's, it's a very confusing picture of different warlords fighting one another on religious, on ethnic grounds, that's probably what Dark Age Britain is like, right. is you've got people fighting each other and struggling for survival. It's not just Britain against Saxon. Ambrosius Aurelianus is is one of the Supreme Generals of the period, he's one that Gildas mentions, he's one that filters into that Arthur myth.
7: So, um, but the idea that Arthur was a a freedom fighter, combating, the arrival of the English in, in these islands is pure pure speculation.
4: It is, it is, but I mean, because the aftermath is retold by every generation, some do see it uh, as, a, as a freedom fighter. It's the story of the underdog who yeah. succeeds against the odds. It's a heroic failure at the end because of the way he dies, he's brought down by treachery. Um, in the sort of 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, it's very much the story of Christianity versus paganism because he's seen as a, he's preserving the, the Christian faith amongst the pagan Saxons who were invading. And then we see later writers bringing in the Holy Grail and making a more explicit connection between Arthur and Christ, and an object Sorry, that was at the crucifixion.
7: You've mentioned Glastonbury, but what are the sites in Britain um, sort of claim to having a link with Arthur and, um, you know, How much credence should we give them? (laughs) (laughs) It's
4: difficult, I think think of all the sites in Britain, Tintagel's probably got the greatest claim, because archaeologically we can say there is definitely something here in the sixth centuries AD, at the time that Arthur is supposed, or an Arthur character is supposed to have existed. It's an elite site, it's a wealthy site, bingo in that sense. I mean although you can't say there is definitely an Arthur here, it's the sort of thing we should be looking for. Glastonbury, less certain, Um, because Geoffrey, of course, describes um, Arthur being mortally wounded, carried to a place called Avalon where his his wounds attended. And so later, writers have suggested that Avalon is Glastonbury, it's a marshy area, it would have been an island, there's early Christianity there. And of course, as I said, the monks were very keen to build on that as a money-making exercise. Um, there's lots of other legendary places. You've got sort of Arthur's Seat uh, up in Edinburgh. You've got Ar- various different places with Arthur names attached to them on very little evidence, other than perhaps sort of it's, it shows the, the popularity of the story and people wanted to link major parts of their landscape with it. Yeah. Um, but it's difficult because there's, there's so little original story there in that, that really actual, the kernel of truth that's somewhere buried in Geoffrey of Monmouth's text. is is so small that, you know, we we occasionally get things like Mount Baden being described as one of the the 12 battles that Arthur fights against the Saxons, but we haven't got a geographical placement for that, and people have tried to link in Baden with Badbury or or Baden Hill, there's various different sort of elements of, of that name, but we're looking for a battle that may not have taken place, a battle where after the fighting was done, bodies would have been taken away and buried, swords would have been picked up, Chainmail would have been removed.
7: Yeah.
4: It, we, we really, we're never gonna find Mount Baden securely. So there's very little else to go on. So of course the Arthur mythology has created lots of sites, but if we're trying to look at archeologically speaking, Tintagel's got it, but very few other sites really are anything
7: like this. And so before Geoffrey of Monmouth, um, the legend of Arthur would have been purely um, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. No, nothing written down before chapter three.
4: yes I mean the, the, the difficulty is I suppose the earliest reference we get to Arthur is in a poem called the Godothin which is written about 600 AD um, the trouble is, it's been rewritten and added to o- over time, so the version that we're looking at might be ninth century rather than the original 6th century, but there is a, it's, a, it's a doomed, like most of these stories are, it ends in, in death and catastrophe, but it's a, it's a doomed um, it attack by a British force uh, against Catrithe, against what is now Catterick. They all die, um, and, but one of the characters in a particularly violent scene is shown. he was a great hero, but he was no Arthur. So it's suggesting that Arthur, as a model of heroism, exists about AD 600. Now, of course, it's just possible that that element, he was no Arthur, was added 300 years later to the poem. And and it's difficult to know when that originally appeared. Same with the um, history of of Britain, the Historia Brutonum, which is written, some say, by a a cleric called Nennius, Um, in the 9th century AD. It's a composite series of different texts, oral traditions which are written down. There are 12 battles in there which are credited to Arthur, but they've added detail. It's been added by later writers. So we get Arthur doing superhuman feats of endurance, slaughtering hundreds of people single-handedly. There's no original primary source that we can say this is the earliest secure reference to Arthur. What Geoffrey Monmouth's doing is he's compiling all the various sources, none of which we have today, some of which may be oral traditions, and he's writing it down for the first time. Right, okay. But the Arthur that he shows is very different to the Arthur that we understand today. There's no Holy Grail. There's no sort of uh, Guinevere. There's a, there's a... Well, she's got various different names, like Genemara, um and, and, and so on. Uh, but we see Arthur attacking the Orkney Islands. We see Arthur invading France, attacking the Romans. Um, we see It's a very sort of... There's a mix of pagan and Christian in there. It's a very confused picture, but we just don't have those sources. So uh, trying to find the origins of the Arthur story, the the first
7: reference to him is is almost impossible. And and what happened to Tintagel after Richard during the medieval period? well, it, for it, 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 it's,
4: it's a site that Sir has no strategic importance. Yeah. It, it's, it's political importance, and it's politically important for Richard because it, it shows his claims not just to the Cornish, but it shows his sort of ambitions um, to, to being a prominent ruler. Um, although he, he's not actually king, and we, we, we're not sure of his loyalty. There's, there's several points where he seems to be acting against his brother um, Henry the Third. Um, but it's a site that's very much associated with him, and when he dies. It, its history seems to be in one of a long decline. Right. Obviously, there's, there's a huge landslip a couple of hundred years ago which takes out the central part of the site. Um, it's a romantic ruin, but it's a very dramatic ruin. And it's really in the 17th and 18th century, we see it being rediscovered by a whole series of poets and writers and artists who are building on something like the pre-Raphaelite movement, build on the mythology of Britain and the, the drama of it, especially the drama of, of King Arthur's court. And so we see um, descriptions of of Tintagel being the Court of Arthur, we've got Merlin's cave, we've got all those dramatic associations. So as a ruin, it fits the picture of a golden age in the past. This idea of chivalry. Exactly. So it fits that idea. And the trouble is certainly the Victorians have modified the site a lot. So it's very difficult when we go out there today to identify. What's original 6th century? What's part of Richard's house? What's part of a Victorian um, sort of ruinification, the sort of creation yeah. of, a, of a dramatic folly that, that fits the Arthur myth. Yeah. But really it, it's one brief moment um, in, in the in the light really, is the time when, when Richard builds his, his house here. Once he's gone, it, it's really a, a period of decline until it becomes a, a tourist attraction.
7: And so the interest in the site would have been rekindled with um likes of Tennyson, and they're interested yes. in Arthur. and,
4: and it, it, it's, it's interesting, a lot of people at, at that time describe it as Arthur's castle, because they don't, it doesn't look like a medieval castle, because Richard's done his job at creating this, this, art, this artificial folly, this sort of antiquated building, which is really a new build from his, his point of view. So yeah. by the time we get to the 17th and 18th century, people are looking at it and saying, it doesn't look like a medieval castle, it must be Arthur's. So they start describing it as, as, as Arthur's Castle.
3: That was Miles Russell and Spencer Mizen. You can read more about their trip in our February edition. Miles Russell is the author of Unroman Britain, Exposing the Great Myth of Britannia, which was published by the History Press in 2010. He will also be one of the speakers at our Roman Britain Day, which is taking place on the 27th of February at Shed Museum in Bristol. To find out more about that, and our First World War Day on the 28th of February, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And just before we go, I thought I'd read out a couple of messages that have come in to our podcast at historyextra.com email address recently. We've had a few people get in touch to praise last week's lecture from Michael Scott about global history. Among them was John Dakin, who writes... I'm writing to tell you how much I enjoyed Michael Scott's lecture on world history. As I see it, it was not only about how we see history, but how we see the world. We are inclined to be rather insular. Michael Scott helps us to see things from a global perspective. Well, thank you for that, John. And also writing in recently was Jason A. Greer from Greenville in South Carolina. Jason writes, Thank you for the recent Christmas quiz history podcast. My family and I enjoyed testing ourselves with it while travelling through the smoky mountains of Tennessee over the Christmas holidays. Well, thanks for that, Jason, and if anyone's not yet had a go at the quiz, you can still download it from all the usual places, and it was the episode that went out on the 24th of December. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we're due to be talking about Henry VIII with Susanna Lipscomb and Dan Jones. And if you can't wait that long for more History Audio content, then you might like to try our History of Britain special podcast, which can be downloaded for free from our website. Visit historyextra.com forward slash Britain podcast to listen to that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles, and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.